Hello, I'm Marcus Louth and welcome to the latest edition of the UFO Insight Podcast, where we examine all things UFOs and aliens, conspiracies and mysteries, and all aspects of the paranormal. Okay, today we'll look at some of the lesser known encounters of UFO landings in close proximity to respective witnesses. And there are many more of these encounters than we might think, accounts which stretch back decades. We will start with a sighting that enjoyed multiple witnesses, the Bexley Heath landing in July 1955. Not only did an apparent alien craft land in the middle of a busy street in a London suburb, but the incident took place in the middle of the day. It was somewhere between 12 and 1pm on July 17th. 15-year-old labourer Rodney Maynard, along with the rest of the workers at a building site in Bexley Heath, a borough of London, were in the middle of their lunch break. As they ate and chatted noisily among themselves, news reached them that something was happening in a nearby street, King Harold's Way. After a second or two of quiet contemplation, the group of around 30 men moved to the nearby road. When they reached it, they could see that a thing had landed in the roadway. It was so large it stretched across the entire width of the road and onto the pathways. Maynard would recall in the early 2000s they had about eight massive suckers on the underside which touched the ground and appeared to hold the craft's weight. He would further state that the centre was still, but the outer rim was spinning slowly. White lights also flashed like a camera flash. There was also a low but very audible humming noise. Maynard further remembers the craft had windows but the glass was concave and moulded together so you couldn't see it. This is an interesting detail and one that shows up in several other UFO cases. When one or two of the builders became brave enough to move forward in an attempt to touch the craft, it began to spin faster. It then began to rise and move towards Bedmore Primary School. The apparent spaceship hovered for several moments before shooting directly upwards and disappearing. Maynard's 16-year-old brother also witnessed the incident. He too would recall years later that the craft was black, sleek and streamlined. It also had a polished metal finish to it. And furthermore, there was not a doubt in anyone's mind that the incident was a hoax or a prank. Another key witness to the Bexley Heath encounter was Margaret Fry, who was a young woman in her 20s at the time of the encounter. On the day in question, Fry was on her way to an appointment at the general practice on King Harold's Way. During her visit with the doctor, the pair noticed such a commotion outside in the street that both had witnessed the object land for themselves. According to Fry, the craft was saucer-shaped and had a mixture of dark colours. She would state over four decades later that it was blue, silver, grey and pewter in texture, yet none of those colours at the same time. Furthermore, the craft had three spheres on the underside. One of these flopped out just prior to landing. This perhaps contained eight suckers witnessed by Maynard. A group of children eventually walked towards the craft, intrigued to get a closer look. However, it would rise beyond their reach as soon as they entered its immediate vicinity. The sighting is still unexplained, and with many of the witnesses in their advanced years, with several having passed away, it is a sighting that will perhaps hold its secrets ever tighter as the years go by. If we cross the English Channel and fast forward a little over half a century, we find an incident that unfolded in France in January 1981, one that not only saw a UFO land, but leave behind apparent physical evidence of its visit. And what's more, this evidence was examined and photographed by both the witness, local police and investigators within days of the landing. That isn't to say that the investigation isn't without controversy though. Many claims of the flawed handling of the evidence and the scene would be levelled by secondary investigators, both sceptics and believers alike. 
The witness to the Transland Province landing was long reported to be Renato Collini. This was mainly due to the privacy laws in France. However, we know today that in reality, the witness is Renato Nicolai. At a little after 5pm on January 8th, 1981, Nikolai was at his home building a concrete shelter for an outside water pump. His house overlooked the land below and was built on a raised level. As he noticed how cold it was becoming, he heard a sort of faint whistling. He turned his attention towards the sound and in front of him was a device in the air at the treetop height at the very edge of the land of his property. He would distinctly remember the device was not spinning, and furthermore, it was coming lower to the ground. He moved closer to a stone cabin on his property so he could watch the object land. As it moved, there was no flames or clear sign of propulsion or even an engine. Almost as soon as it touched the ground, it rose again, the whistling sound still audible. It would take off with speed towards the woodland nearby. It had the shape of two saucers, one on top of the other, and was a lead colour. The higher it went, Nikolai could see four openings on the underside, although no lights or flames were visible from inside. Still a short distance away from where the craft landed, he would wait for a moment until he was happy it was gone. Then, he would walk towards the landing site. Upon arriving at the location, Nikolai could clearly see a circle around two metres across. Within this circle were abrasions or scorch marks. Following his reporting of the incident, further reports would reveal more intricate details of the area. One of those investigating groups was GPAN. They would find mechanical pressure most likely the cause of the impression left at the site, and very likely, the craft was of a weight of between 4-5 to five tonnes. Furthermore, indications were that the underside of the craft was of a temperature between 300-600 to 600 degrees Celsius, between 500 and over 1000 degrees Fahrenheit. Due to the relatively close location of a military base, Nikolai would ponder if the device was some kind of secret military reconnaissance craft. And while UFO enthusiasts had an obvious interest in the case, many theories, bizarrely enough, would revolve around natural phenomena. And this despite the report of a very physical and real nuts and bolts machine. As well as Japan's own suggestion that a 4 or 5 ton machine had made the impressions on the land. In total, from him first noticing the strange whistling sound to the object taking off from the ground and disappearing out of sight, the incident would last no longer than a minute. However, the investigations would all agree it was the alertness of the witness and his ability to take in as much detail as possible that made such a short and otherwise mundane sighting so rich with detail and subsequent information. Given the size of the craft, while it isn't impossible by any stretch of the imagination for a single pilot to fit inside, it is perhaps more likely that the craft was indeed some kind of drone or scouting device. If this is the case, then would it be one of military origin, or from further afield? While it apparently had the ability of propulsion, possibly based on electromagnetic energy, given the immense rise in heat upon its takeoff, that is of an advanced nature, the object didn't exhibit any breathtaking speeds or movements. With this in mind then, is it more likely that the brief landing is one of a clandestine military craft, either French or from one of the numerous American bases in France and other parts of Europe? Might it even be a secret joint international type project? Perhaps the design and propulsion is indeed based on recovered extraterrestrial technology. This itself would be reason enough to discredit or gloss over the incident. Or might the downplaying of evidence be another example of controlling what little information has already ventured into the public arena? Whether there is a connection or not, there are several similar sightings in France on record around the same time.
If we stay in France for a moment, it is worth our time examining the encounter of farmer Maurice Massey that occurred 15 years previously, in 1965, in Valençon. On the morning in question, a strange object calmly landed in his lavender fields and two pale white, thin, humanoid figures exited it. Massey estimated these figures to be around four feet tall. They also had on strange one-piece clothing. They began to inspect the lavender around them, at this stage seemingly unaware of the farmer's presence. When Massey began to approach them, one of the figures pointed a stick-like object at him. It instantly paralysed him where he stood. The figures soon got back into the craft and it took off. Massey, however, remained forcibly motionless for around 15 minutes before the effects of whatever had frozen him wore off. When he was finally able to move, he noticed a huge wet circle on the ground, exactly where the craft had landed. It would set as hard as concrete within hours. It would be over a decade before anything would grow on that spot. Although it is a little more well known, it is worth our time here examining the landing incident in Dolphus, Kansas. On the evening of November 2nd, 1971, a UFO would land on the farmland of the Johnson family. The incident was witnessed in full by 16-year-old Ronnie Johnson, who would describe a mushroom-shaped object with multicoloured lights around the side. Furthermore, the object was accompanied by a low rumbling sound. After witnessing the object hover over one of the farm buildings and growing in brightness, Ronnie would return home only to find that over 30 minutes had passed, even though to him it was only several moments since his mother had called to him. Although his parents did not witness the UFO, they did accompany their son to the apparent landing spot. All three saw the damaged trees overhead. The strangest thing though, was a strange slightly glowing ring on the ground. What's more, when Ronnie's mother reached down to touch the bizarre substance, she experienced an immediate numbing sensation run through her fingers and hand. Even stranger, when she touched the top of her leg with the same hand, the numbness began there also, and would last for several days. The family would inform UFO researchers of the incident, one of whom, Jacques Belay, would have the strange substance analysed. According to his results, the substance contained an organic organism similar to bacteria or a fungus. He would further propose that such intense heat from the bottom of the craft could have caused an accelerated growth of these bacteria. Other findings in the soil nearby would also suggest some kind of reaction process had taken place between the craft's propulsion system and the ground, and it would appear that these reactions were an unintended consequence of the landing as opposed to a purposeful action. What we should perhaps note here more than anything else, however, is the strange ring that was left behind. Whatever the substance was, it appeared active in causing the numbness in Mrs. Johnson's hand and leg. In the summer of 1965, an apparent landing of a UFO would unfold in Cherry Creek, New York, witnessed at first by the teenage son, Harold Butcher, of the farm's owners, and then, when it reappeared, by the entire family. What's more, the incident was investigated by the New York Police, the United States Air Force, and the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon. Interestingly, it would also come to light that around 30 minutes before the sighting at the dairy farm in Cherry Creek, a radar system at Lockport Air Force Base would pick up a momentary target of an unknown aircraft. It is certainly no stretch at all to assume that this object was the same as that witnessed by the Butcher family only minutes later. To around 8.20pm on the evening of August 19, 1965, 16-year-old Harold Butcher was at the family's dairy farm. He was in the barn utilising the milking machine on the 17 cows which resided there. As he worked, a portable radio broadcast the news. Suddenly, however, the radio was overcome by a prolonged burst of static interference. 
seconds later, the milking machine shut down as if it had suddenly lost all of its power. When it did, Harold could hear one of the bulls outside bellowing and banging against its enclosure, as if severely anxious about something. Upon hearing the commotion from the bull outside, Harold went quickly over to a window in the barn. Peering through it, he could see a large elliptical object slightly above the ground, approximately a quarter of a mile away. Underneath the bizarre object was a reddish vapour, and a strange beeping sound was also audible. The craft remained just above the surface for several moments, and then shot straight up, vanishing into the summer evening sky in a matter of seconds. He immediately picked up the telephone to speak to his family in the main house. When they arrived and looked up to where the object had disappeared, all could see a greenish glow in the clouds. Furthermore, a strange odour remained in the air around the farm. Even more bizarre and unnerving, a steel bar on the bull's enclosure was severely bent. Far from being over, however, 30 minutes later, the strange craft would reappear, this time in view of the entire butcher family. Upon the object's reappearance, Harold's mother immediately telephoned the state police. It was circling in the skies above the dairy farm. Two state police officers would investigate the property and log the report. They would also inform the Air Force who would arrive at the dairy farm the following day. Captain James Dorsey would represent the United States Air Force with regard to the sightings by the Butcher family. With him were four technicians who would conduct an extensive search of the ground, specifically the landing site. They would indeed make some intriguing discoveries, such as unexplained markings on the ground and a purplish liquid substance. Parts of the grass and other vegetation were also singed slightly. They would ultimately end their investigation with the sightings unexplained. NICAP would later manage to obtain samples of the strange purple substance and have it tested at the Kaoweki Chemical Company. Their analysis would find traces of aluminium, iron and silicon. However, as a liquid, it was unidentified. The following evening, Richard Ward, a state trooper on patrol, would witness a very similar object in the skies overhead. He would report that it had eight circular lights on what he presumed to be the underside. Furthermore, it moved twice as fast as a jet. He also noticed a strange faint sound, unlike anything he had heard before, but he believed was associated with this strange craft. Other sightings in the same region would also come to light, for example at just before 5.30pm in the early evening of August 20th in the Plattsburgh area of New York, a round flat disc shaped object was witnessed circling back and forth in the skies overhead. The witness would estimate the object to be around 15 to 20 feet across and around 2 or 3 miles away from their location. After several minutes, the dish-shaped craft accelerated off and vanished into the night sky. Once more, like the Cherry Creek incident, radar at Plattsburgh Air Force Base would pick up an aerial anomaly at the same time as the sighting. Later that evening, at around 11.30pm at Pease Air Force Base in nearby New Hampshire, the watch supervisor would track an anomalous object for several miles as it made its way to the northwest of Pease. Interestingly, Especially with the case we have just examined in mind, the object was slow and sporadic at times as opposed to, like many sightings, the object moving across their screens at impossible speed. In fact, so calm was the apparent journey of the unknown craft that it remained visible on the radar screens for close to half an hour. In the summer of 1977 in West Pittsburgh in the Contra Costa County area of California, three teenage boys would claim to witness a flying saucer land. Their account garnered enough interest to eventually earn itself a place in the April 2nd 1978 edition of the Oakland Tribune, and their story wasn't told with a mocking tone, with all three of the boys still suffering nightmares over the incident. 
as easy as it might have been to dismiss the teenagers' accounts. The police would interview them all separately. All would tell the same story, and all exhibited genuine displays of fear in relation to their encounter. Whatever came to the ground in a purposeful and controlled landing that evening in California, it was unlikely to have been nothing more than the teenagers' imaginations. At around 11pm on May 20th, 1977, Lenny Young, George Ferreira and Patrick Morrison, all 14 years old, were sitting enjoying the California night sky, mulling over their options on how to spend what remained of the evening. They were in a quiet field in between the Santa Fe Railroad tracks and the Susan Bay Marsh regions. The boys would often come here, particularly Lenny. Suddenly, the teenagers would notice a group of bright red lights with a blue light flitting like a firefly in between them. The lights remained at exactly the same distance from each other, suggesting they were all connected to one structure. The young boys watched the object hover for several moments before it then sped off into the distance. When they made their report later, it was estimated that the object travelled around 3 miles in only 5 seconds. A slight sigh of relief that the strange craft had left them soon turned into a nervous gasp only seconds later, however. The bizarre object was suddenly back overhead, and this time it was descending. The three teenagers looked on from their spot in the lonely field as a strange craft came down to the ground. On the side of the round but flat object was a row of square lights that the boys believed to be windows. Various lights would blink and flash in no apparent sequence. Aside from the lights and the general outline of the craft around 150 feet ahead of them and the dim light from a liquor store across from the field, all around was swallowed by blackness. Then, something came out of the darkness. Three humanoid figures emerged and headed directly towards the three teenagers. Lenny would later state, they were like smoke, they were black and had no faces, I don't know if they had arms or heads. He would estimate them to be between five and six feet tall. Recalling how well he knew the field, even claiming to have stayed there all night previously, he would state in his report, I know what people look like when walking in the dark, they were not people, they were something else. Pat agreed that they walked weird. He would also recall how they appeared to wear long skirts over their heads. They also looked as if they were linked together. George would state they walked like robots, and that they were grey objects with a kind of human shape but no eyes. Incidentally, it would seem that all of the boys, George would take the incident harder than the rest. He still suffered regular nightmares up to a year following the incident. It was as these strange robot-like creatures were approaching the teenagers that they suddenly found their feet and ran. It appeared, at least from their perspective, that the three humanoids were following them. They eventually lost sight of them, however, and arrived scared and breathless at Pat's house. It was Pat's mother who ran the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Office. Deputy Sheriff Douglas Pendleton would speak to all three of the boys personally. He immediately ruled out alcohol or drug intake and as well as being impressed with the similarity between their stories, he further bought into their sincerity when they offered to take lie detector tests to prove they were telling the truth. UFO investigator Richard Haynes would also speak with each of the young boys. He too believed their story was too solid to be a lie, and their fright was all too real. Haynes would also point to the fact that the weather was clear that evening over West Pittsburgh, and with no ground fog of any kind. Essentially, their sighting was very unlikely to be a mistaken natural aerial phenomena sighting. Furthermore, the colours and structure of the craft didn't match any known military or commercial aircraft. Despite the apparent authenticity of the three teenagers, however, the case would ultimately stall.
What's more, it will most likely remain unexplained, barring any matching accounts that might come to light in the future. None of the teenagers experienced missing time, and there were no signs of abduction. Hence, hypnotic regression would be of no use, and would reveal nothing further. Also, there were no physical signs of a landing at the site the boys witnessed a craft, and due to the already secluded location, there were no other witnesses to offer another point of view and to add to the timeline of events. As we can see then, there are many more UFO landing cases than many of us might think, and the ones we have examined here are just a tiny number of many such cases on record. We might ask if these close encounters are merely coincidental meetings, or whether they might have a deeper, far-reaching purpose. We also might ask just how many UFO landings take place each year that are not reported, or perhaps not even witnessed at all. Indeed, these incidents could be happening all the time, right under our collective nose. Just what the reasons might be for these landings of apparently otherworldly vehicles remains unknown. For now though, I'll simply thank you for joining me once again, and be sure to leave any thoughts in the comments, and check out the links for further reading on some of the cases we have been discussing here today. Remember to subscribe to our channel, and follow us on social media to keep up to date on future podcasts, articles and videos, and of course if there is anything you want us to feature on future podcast episodes, then just get in touch at marcus at ufoinsight.com. Until next time, goodbye, and take care. Thank <music> you.